The following sermon was preached by me, Jeremiah Cox, at the Elm Street Church of Christ in El Reno, Oklahoma. It is my prayer that you are edified by this study, and I encourage you to test all things by the Word of God. It's wonderful to be with you this morning. It's certainly good to see some visitors in our midst who want you to know that you're an honored guest, and we'd love to see you back at any other opportunity that you might have. It's been encouraging to worship God together this morning. I've been edified, certainly, and I hope that this sermon will contribute to that as well as we look into God's Word for that guidance spiritually. You know, we see a lot of advertisements on TV for products, some of which certainly have the target consumers um, that are families and products that families use and that they use together. And then some that aren't really even products that are meant to be used as a family, but that are promoted and advertised in a way which sees the value of family and attracts people to that product because of the family in that ad is happy as they use it together. And it somehow brought that family together. And those families we see on advertisements and even other forms of entertainment like TV shows and movies and such, they never are portrayed as disjointed and unhappy and depressed families. And if they are, perhaps in a movie, there is this moral that is seeking to be established where there's a happy ending, most likely. And those people do get along and those people are um, dwelling together in unison and love. And so nobody likes their family to be portrayed in that way as disjointed and unhappy and depressed. And nobody likes to see families in general be portrayed in that way. That's not attractive. No one wants to be a part of that. And those who are a part of such families, they don't like that it's that way. They wish for a way out. They wish things were better. That's what a family desires, a home that is flourishing, a home that is healthy, a a home that is happy, a home that is stable a home that is sure to bring children up in it that will have such characters in their lives. You know, it's interesting as we look at those advertisements and those shows and the portrayals of families that are happy and loving and healthy and and thriving, that those often are bold-faced lies. They are families which are portrayed as happy and healthy and thriving and together that are materialistic. We see that a lot in advertisements. This this product, this material wealth, this thing has brought us together as a family. And it's superficial. And the happiness is only attributed to what is on this earth. And then there are other unnatural um, situations where perhaps a, a family seems to be dwelling together in happiness and contentment and healthiness and a son or a daughter has two dads or two moms, and there is this portrayal of health, when in reality it's a bold-faced lie. It's unnatural and it's perverted. And so what we've got to be able to do is differentiate between what is truly a happy family, a healthy family, a stable family, and what is false advertisement of what is happy and healthy and stable. We've got to see what a true family is that is that family which is not disjointed, depressed, and unhappy, but healthy and smiling, content and loving and happy. In Proverbs 24 and verse 3, the Scripture reads, "Though Through wisdom a house is built, 
and by understanding it is established. By knowledge, its rooms are filled with all precious and pleasant riches. That house that is filled with goodness, filled with riches, that is healthy and happy and stable, is the family and the house that is built on wisdom and established by understanding. Those are the homes that we should be seeking to cultivate and the homes that we should desire to be a part of. And while it is suggested by many uh, commentators that this house could refer to any position and station of life, whether it be a relationship or a, an office that one holds or an estate or a job that one has, and if it's built and established on wisdom and understanding, it will flourish and have many riches. What other better application is there than a home? Our homes will be healthy. They will be established. They will be solid and they will be trustworthy if they are built and established on wisdom and understanding. And we need to seek that and we need to make sure our homes are predicated upon those things. Consider firstly that the house that is filled with riches, that is filled with those wonderful blessings of God, is the house that puts God first. That seems obvious. It says there in Proverbs 24 that that home is built on wisdom and established on understanding. But notice in Proverbs 1 and verse 7 where that wisdom and understanding comes from, where the proverb writer says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. If we're to have that healthy and happy home filled with those precious and pleasant riches, then it's going to first come from that wisdom which comes from prioritizing God by fearing Him, by putting Him first, by having that healthy reverence for God that comes above and foremost before everything else. We can't place things before God in our families. We can't place God behind our spouse or our children or behind the activities we involve ourselves in and our goals and our values. God has to come first if our home is going to be that healthy home filled with those riches. And I think we can see some of those principles in Matthew the 6th chapter which is not talking about the home, is speaking about contentment ultimately in Christ and trusting in God to, to give us what we need and not worrying about those things. But it certainly yields various principles that would be applied very uh, wisely to this concept of the home. In Matthew 6 and verse 33, remember Jesus saying, Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. These things are obvious to us in verse 25, and as we're familiar with the text, as the necessities of life. Do not worry, he says, about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink or about your body, what you will put on. So these material possessions that are not just luxurious, but they're necessities. They are the bare necessities of life. Jesus is saying, don't worry about those. Don't even put those before God. Make sure that God is prioritized. And we can apply that to the home. The home needs to prioritize God. And ironically, what often prevents the home from being happy and healthy and stable is the misprioritization of those things which we deem necessary for a healthy and happy and flourishing home, the necessities. And so we worry about our home being established. We worry about our home being provided for. We worry about our home being safe and at peace. And we worry about those things that if we do not have, we think will threaten that peace and happiness in our home. If there's not food on the table, 
if there aren't clothes on our backs, if, if there's not a roof over our head, if, if our children don't have the proper education, which we could often say is a very important part of our lives, if they don't have that environment with those physical necessities, then our home is going to crumble. Our home is going to deteriorate. Our home is going to be lacking. And so that's the irony in it. When those who have this goal of a healthy and happy home worry about these things and they actually destroy their home because that's not really what is necessary for a healthy and happy home. That's not what's necessary for a house to be filled with riches. And what they do is they place these things before God. A father or a husband works excessively and adds hours upon hours because they think that they are giving the healthiness and the happiness to their children and their spouse spouse that they need by having an abundance of things, by having, you know, their bank account filled up so no worry has to be there. And, and they're working extra hours so that eventually they can spend more time with their family because they've got this solid foundation. And what they don't know they're doing is they're neglecting their family. They're neglecting their family by putting those things like work above their family, thinking that in the future their family will come before that. But more importantly, they're putting those things before God. Working overtime, so I'm going to miss Sunday evening services. Working overtime, so I'm not going to be able to get to all of the nights of, of the gospel meeting. And, and I'm working overtime because we need the rest of the money. We, we've got to pay the bills. We've got to have a solid foundation. We've got to, to eradicate this worry, and this is the only way to do it. And ironically, we are pulling the rug out from under our families when we do that. We've got to put God first and worrying about these things takes that out of the equation. Notice in verse 19, he says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And so there's a misprioritization of things when we start to worry about these things. You don't put God first and, and now our heart is not on those important spiritual treasures that will bring treasures to our home but it's on the physical. And so it takes focus away from God. Verse 22, he says, the lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? He's saying you can't have double vision. That word good means happy and healthy or healthy, but, but it more specifically means single. It is, it is single. It's not duplicitous. And so you don't have one focus on what is light and then the other focus what is on unrighteous mammon. When you divide your focus, you're not getting a little bit of light and a little bit of the other distractions. You're getting everything that is a distraction. We can't expect to have one foot in the world and one foot in the kingdom and be effective and to be following God faithfully. What Jesus is saying is that if you have a little bit of darkness, your eye is just a little bad, then that evil is going to take over and you'll be full of darkness. And so it is in our families. We can't expect to to have God put first, but then we are uh, compromising with things and putting other things in front and expect our family to thrive when God should be the center of our family. Verse 24, it adds the absolute neglect of service to God when we worry about these things. No one can serve two masters For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and mammon. 
When we take God out of our focus, that's when our home will crumble. And it's ironic that we do that sometimes because we think what we're doing is going to bring that stability to our home. It won't. And all that is is a product of worry. We need to realize what he says in verse 27. Which of you by worrying can add one cubit to his stature? Worrying does nothing for us. Trusting in God does everything for us. I think we see the value of putting God first in our homes when we read in the Old Testament the instructions given to the children of Israel as they're going in to possess the promised land. In Deuteronomy 6 and verse 1, in a familiar text, we remember Moses teaching the children of Israel what the Lord has said. This is the commandment, and these are the statutes and judgments, Deuteronomy 6, 1, which the Lord your God has commanded to teach you. And notice why He has commanded to teach us them that you may observe them in the land which you are possessing, uh, crossing over to possess, that you may fear the Lord to keep all His statutes, His commandments, which I command you, you and your son and your grandson, all the days of your life, that your days may be prolonged. And he adds to that, Therefore, hear, O Israel, and be careful to observe it, that it may be well with you, and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord God of your fathers has promised you a land flowing with milk and honey. So the whole family of Jacob, the children of Israel, and all of their individual families and the tribes that they make up are going to dwell and they are going to prosper and they are going to have their lives prolonged in this new land, not by worrying about working and working and working to provide all these things, not by going out and doing your own thing to provide yourself with these things, but keeping the commandments of God. He'll bless them with these things if they keep His commandments There's value in keeping God first. But notice in verse 4 what he says and adds to that. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. He emphasizes that there's only one God. And he does that because they're about to go into the Canaan land, which is filled with multiple gods. And what he's saying is the same thing that Jesus said in Matthew 6. Don't let your vision be divided. You can't serve this idol and serve God and prosper. It doesn't work that way. In our homes, we cannot seek to have a little bit of our focus on the world and then have some of our focus on God and expect to flourish. All of our focus has to be on God. And I understand that we don't have the temptation like they would have to actually bow down and worship golden images, graven and carved images. But anything that comes between us and God, that comes first before God, is an idol. In Colossians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul mentions that covetousness is idolatry. And so when something comes between us and God, it comes between our family and God, where we don't prioritize God, we're not going to flourish, we're not going to prosper, we're not going to have our house filled with riches. God is one, and therefore all of our attention, all of our energy should be focused on Him. We love Him with all our heart, soul, and with all our strength. And when we do that, we're going to reap the benefits of our labor. In Proverbs 3 and verse 9, there's something interesting that wisdom tells us. Proverbs 3 and verse 9, the Scripture says, Honor the Lord with your possessions and with the firstfruits of all your increase." So your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. And I understand that here it's speaking in context about physical things. They were to tithe under the Old Testament and they were give of their first fruits to the Lord. And the Lord promised them that if they did that and devoted themselves to him in those physical things, that he would bless them abundantly in that. And it's the same thing today. 
we contribute to the Lord and His work on the first day of the week with what we've been prospered. And we do it generously. We don't do it with a grudging obligation. And He tells us that He'll bless us in doing that. We don't do it to receive physical things. But He tells us that He will abundantly supply us for every good work in 2 Corinthians 9 so that we can give even more. It is a biblical principle that if we give to God, He gives back to us. He blesses us even in our physical life. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all these things will be added to you. But I want us to understand that there is also a general principle that can be applied, not just the physical things we give to God, but everything we give to God spiritually. He says that if you give Him your possessions and honor Him in that way and give Him the first fruits, that is the best of what you have and the first of what you have, then your life will be filled with an abundance of possessions and an abundance of riches. Your vats will overflow with new wine. If we give God everything... If we give him our entire focus, we honor God first and foremost to the neglect of physical things like things we do for entertainment and recreation and work. And God is first and foremost. He's going to bless us abundantly, ultimately with a richness of spiritual blessings, things that can't be destroyed by moth or rust, things that can't be stolen from us, but things that endure for eternity. And that should be our focus. That's what makes a home healthy. That's what makes a home happy. That's the house filled with riches, the house that puts God first. But you know, there's a practical side to this. The house that puts God first is not just putting God first by lip service, but they're manifesting that in their lives. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and understanding. And notice in Proverbs 3, the encouragement and putting God first by seeking His wisdom and trusting in it. Proverbs 3 and verse 5 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He shall direct your paths. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and depart from evil. It will be health to your flesh and strength to your bones. In other words, in this context of our lesson, the house that is filled with riches is the house that puts God first and it puts God first not by doing what they think is best. Not what doing what they think God wants, but doing what God wants. Trusting in God's wisdom by coming to His Word and doing what He says is best for that home. Seeking God's wisdom, not the wisdom of man. This is something that the Apostle Paul understood was a danger for Christians and churches, and we can also apply it as a danger to the home. Trusting in man's wisdom, trusting in our own wisdom. We think that this is what's best, and we often we often hide it behind this facade of of wisdom and of nobility that this is what's best for my family it may not be what's best for your family but this is what's best for my family but you know what that's that's an arrogant thought it's an arrogant thought to think that what's best for a family is different for my family than it is with your family and anyone else because God's the one that created the home and it doesn't belong to any of us the home and our homes belong to God and so does his instruction manual, if you will. In Colossians, the second chapter, the Apostle Paul warned the Colossian brethren of heeding the wisdom of the world. And so we need to take that warning as, as our homes. In Colossians 2 and verse 1, he says, I want you to know what a great conflict I have for you and those in Laodicea and for as many of us, have, as many as have not seen my face in the flesh. And this is his conflict that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love and attaining to all riches 
of the full assurance of understanding to the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. He says, I want you to know the depth of the riches and the wonder of the riches that are God's wisdom, his knowledge. And here's his conflict. He says, this I say, lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive words. In other words, there's a lot of things that are going to be said in the world about religion and about Christ, but in this context about the home and what's a healthy home and how to have a healthy marriage, how to have healthy and happy and content children, both physically and mentally and spiritually. There's a lot that people want to talk about with regard to that. But what we shouldn't be done is drawn away with persuasive words. He says in verse 8, Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. Man's wisdom, he's saying to the Colossians, is not true wisdom. Man's wisdom is not where you find these spiritual riches. The riches are in the wisdom of God. And we've got to understand that with our homes. What the popular psychologists say and philosophers say is not what we should follow, but what God says. And while I understand that there are benefits to psychologists in helping marriages that are struggling and such, those should always be taken with warning and they should be searched out and filtered through God's word. Certainly the professionals have something to offer, but God has the true substance. Our houses, our homes rather, are not going to be flourishing by the wisdom of man, not by popular education of the home, but by the word of God. What we've got to do is differentiate between those wisdoms. We've got to see that what is portrayed on the television and what is portrayed in modern education may not necessarily be as wise as it's saying it's going to be. It may not be as healthy for a home as we may think it is. And the way that we would discern whether it is good advice and whether it is healthy is whether it is in accordance with God's will or whether it contrasts with God's will. In James chapter 3, James mentions two wisdoms that are polar opposites. And he asked them, who is wise and understanding among you? James 3 through 13. Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. Then he talks about two wisdoms. If you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your heart, do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, and demonic. For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure and peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. I want us to notice some of the things that are used to describe these two wisdoms. He says this wisdom that is earthly and sensual and demonic, that is not true wisdom at all, and it certainly doesn't come from God, is first that wisdom which has bitter envy and self-seeking. That phrase bitter envy is in the Greek, pikros zelos, and we recognize zelos because it's translated into zeal. Certainly this word is translated into envy and jealousy in various contexts, and it may indeed be the context here, but it simply means zeal, fervor, heat. Figuratively, that is the energy that we have for something that we're passionate about, if you will. The Young's Living Translation says, if you have bitter zeal. And so it's zeal which yields bitter results. Just because you're, you're on fire about something, 
Just because you're convinced of something and you go all in on something doesn't mean that that's going to be good. It may be admirable and honorable that you have such conviction and energy that is focused in an area, but it doesn't mean that area is right. There's an example of this in Romans 10 and verse 2 when the Apostle Paul says of the Jews, I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God. You know, that's admirable. We should have a zeal for God. But he says it's not according to knowledge. I've heard it described as like a fire without a fireplace. A fireplace without a fire is really not worth anything either. But how much more damage will a fire without a fireplace cause? Our zeal, in other words, needs to be rightly directed. And so individuals who have this zeal have have this energy about making their home good and healthy and providing for their children and, and, and nurturing their marriage. And, and they're so on fire about this and they go to these sources that are not from God. They're going to end up destroying their home. That's the only outcome. Bitter results. And you know, a lot of these sources which offer advice for our marriages and for our homes and raising our children, it comes along with what that wisdom comes along with in James 3, self-seeking. Self-seeking. Selfish ambition is another translation. And it's about self-promotion and self-interest. And so there's a marriage that's not going well, and, and perhaps the marriage is not going well, and, and it's not going well because one of those people has had to give up their dream has had to sacrifice their dream. They're not bringing in the bacon, if you will. They're not making the money for the home. They had to give up that dream of their career and such. And it's caused some bitterness in that marriage. And so a psychologist, a professional, may be one who gives advice that maybe you should put something into place like daycare for the children or some other thing. Maybe a meal service so you don't have to cook as much. Whatever's whatever's making you sacrifice that so that each of you can follow your dreams and there won't be that bitterness. All that is is self-seeking, selfish ambition. In a marriage or in a home where there's no willingness to self-sacrifice, it will deteriorate because that's not God's wisdom. He says in verse 17, with the wisdom that has bitter envy and self-seeking, there is confusion in every evil thing. Confusion is a word which means disorder or opposition to authority. And if there's an opposition to the authority of God, ultimately in the structure of the home, which that exactly what we just talked about would, would be in opposition to God's authority, there will be every evil thing that you can imagine. That's where it all comes from. That's why marriages fail. That's why there are unhappy and unprovided for children. And not just in physical things, but in mental things and spiritual things. It's because they've sought the wisdom of the world. But notice one of the things that is characteristic of this heavenly wisdom. It says it's willing to yield. And while certainly that could be applied to willing to yield to each other, I think more importantly it's talking about willing to yield to God. It's the Greek word eupithes, and it's a compound word meaning you well and pithomai to obey, to be persuaded. So it is ready to obey. And James 1 and verse 21, he tells them to lay aside the filthiness and overflow of wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. And that meekness is that willingness to yield. It's understanding that God's ways are better than my ways, so I'm not going to dispute with God. I'm not going to resist His wisdom, His structure in the home in this context. I'm just going to yield to it. And the one who has that wisdom that realizes God's ways are best, so I'm willing to yield to Him, that's the home that will flourish. Verse 18 of James 3 says that the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. In other words, when we seek God's wisdom, that's where the 
righteousness is going to come from. That's where the good things are going to come from. We will reap the fruit of righteousness if we sow God's wisdom. We've got to be able to differentiate between the two. And so when we think about how we're to nurture our marriage or our children, how we're to function as a family, we go to the good book instead of what the world has to offer. In Romans 12 and verse 2, Paul put it this way, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And you know what? He adds to that. That you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. We're going to be able to prove that if we simply yield to God's wisdom. We'll prove that God's ways are better than the world's ways. And we've got to have the faith in that. Isaiah 55 and verse 8, God said, My thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. We need to have that mindset when we think about our home. But you remember in Proverbs 24 and verse 3, and four, it said that through wisdom, a house is built and understanding it is established. And it adds by knowledge, its rooms are filled with all precious and precious, uh, uh, precious and pleasant riches. And so that house that prioritizes God and values his wisdom will have many riches in that house. And it's not speaking of the, the best TV that's on the market. It's not t- speaking about the biggest house and more square footage. It's not talking about, you know, a souped up truck. It's not talking about any physical things. It's speaking of treasures that are invaluable and that are so much better than any physical possession that we can have. For example, a healthy and happy marriage. The home that is built on wisdom and understanding that values God's wisdom and prioritizes God is going to have a healthy and happy marriage. And those homes without a healthy and happy marriage, they don't have their rooms filled with riches. But a healthy and happy marriage, in addition to on top of the foundation of Christ, is a foundation to a healthy and happy home. And in going along with our previous point, valuing God's wisdom, a healthy and happy marriage coming from a house that is built in such a fashion is going to understand God's wisdom behind the way He created the home. In Genesis chapter 2 and verse 18, the Lord God said to Adam, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. God did not create Eve and then create Adam. God created Adam and God created Adam without creating Eve to stress to Adam that it's not good for man to be alone. You need a helper that is comparable to you. And it's not that he created Adam first because Eve would not be as important as Adam I think it's the opposite. He created Adam first to show that the woman, Eve, is that much more important or that much important to God. In verse 24, after describing that Adam said, this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And you can see his his pride in that. You can see his happiness in that after he had sought for a helper comparable to him, did not find one, and God provided him with the perfect one. It says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. A happy and healthy marriage will come from the understanding in God's wisdom that those spouses need each other. They can't be without each other. You know, I have heard of some suggests that their happiness and their contentment and their strength doesn't come from each other in marriage. It it comes from themselves individually. In other words, the reason why our marriage works is because we're content with thriving by ourselves. So so there's not going to be a bitterness in coming into that relationship. That's not what God says. 
A healthy and happy marriage comes upon that dependency in marriage. It's not good that man should be alone. And woman was created for man, so woman without that man, it's not good that woman should be alone. And a healthy and happy marriage will be founded on that wisdom. The Apostle Paul mentions it this way in 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 11 after speaking about the order of authority and that even in the husband and wife relationship. He says, nevertheless, neither is man independent of woman nor woman independent of man in the Lord. For as woman came from man, even so man also comes through woman, but all things are from God. And so the authority that the man has in the home is not viewed by that man nor that woman, nor should it be viewed by us as Christians generally as something which shows superiority and inferiority in the submissive role of the wife. It's interdependency. There's a reason why we say things like, I can't live without this person. And it's not simply romanticized, but as we understand the scriptures, it's true according to God's creation of the home. Can't live without this person. This person is vital to who I am. And God saw it fit that way, that it's not good they should be alone. And so that interdependency understood will allow a marriage to thrive because they're going to understand that while my position, my my place of authority as a man is not the same as your place of submission as a woman, and my position as a woman and submission is not the same as your position as a man in authority, and they understand that both of those are equally valid and needed, then they're not going to be abused, but they're going to be used for the betterment of the second half of that marriage. In Philippians 2 and verse 3, the Apostle Paul said, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. If we apply that to our marriages, they'll thrive because it's God's wisdom. What the wife can do, the husband can't always do. And what the husband can do, the wife can't always do. And that by God's wisdom, so that they can be mutually dependent upon each other and then on God. And if that's mutually understood, then they'll be fulfilling those roles in humility and service. Like I said in Ephesians 5 and verse 22 through the end of the chapter, as Christ is head of the church, so is the husband head of the wife. And the wife is also to be submissive to her husband as the church is to the Lord and everything. But it goes on to talk about really what we saw in Philippians 2, 3 through 4. Those positions are not for the advantage of the one who holds them, but for the advantage of the one who is on the opposite side. As Christ loved the church and gave himself for her, so a husband loves his wife. And as the church respects and submits to Christ, the wife respects and submits to our husband. And the husband can't do what the wife does in that regard. A marriage will fall apart and the home will be unhealthy. Role reversal is commonplace in our society. That will bring a cancer into the home the only way is god's way and in addition to that another part of the riches that would fill such a home is the obedient children that come from those parents a home which prioritizes god and seeks his wisdom will have obedient children i think we've all been in the position where we've been in the supermarket we've been in a store we've been out in public and we've noticed a spoiled child And I understand all children have their fits. All children have a growing process, so they'll go through these things. But it's obvious that child has never been disciplined. That child has never heard those words, no, we're not going to do it today, or we're not going to give it to you now. 
and how much attention that brings on that family and how uncomfortable you can see that the parents of that child are and how uncomfortable you are in being a part of that in that store and how unsettling that is and how much value it would be if that child simply obeyed, if that child was not the pain that child was being. The only way that happens, the only way you have such a child is not just by nature. It's not that children are born that way. Everyone has their own things to overcome and their own obstacles to subdue. But it comes from the nurture of godly parents who are putting God first and seeking His wisdom and raising their children. That's the only way it comes from. In Proverbs 22 and verse 6, wisdom says, Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. There is a way children should go. That's in the way of the Lord's direction. You notice there the words train up a child in the way he should go. That's key in Proverbs, but also in the New Testament. Training does not just have to do with telling them what they should do or shouldn't do, but reinforcing that with discipline. Individuals talk about how I've tried to bring up my children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, but we don't believe in spanking. Well, they're not training up the child in the way that they should go. And that child is destined for failure. That home is destined for unhappiness because of the insubordinates of such children and the stress that brings on a marriage. Train up the child in the way he should go. Proverbs says a lot about training. Proverbs 13 and verse 24 says, He who spares his rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him promptly. You see, the worldly wisdom will tell you, you're unloving if you punish your child with corporal discipline. And the Lord says the way you show you love them is by not sparing the rod. It shows you love them. And the parents who understand that are going to be able to train that child up properly. And Proverbs 19 and verse 18 Wisdom tells us, chasten your son while there is hope and do not set your heart on his destruction. Understanding in God's wisdom that we only have so much time and that it starts from the very beginning or else it might be too late. Train up a child while there is hope. Eventually it's going to be too late. I don't want to do this with my child. It seems like they're too young to learn. They may not be able to grasp the depth of what you're saying, but training doesn't just come with the full understanding right out of the box. Training comes with their understanding. I don't do that, maybe not because I fully understand that, but I don't do that because I'll receive some pain if I do it. And that's why there's hope. And they, they grow up and they'll eventually understand those greater and deeper things and the actuality of the lessons trying to be brought and taught in their lives. But you do it while there's hope. Eventually it's too late. Proverbs 22 and verse 15 says, Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. The rod of correction will drive it far from him. So you see that person that's acting foolish and someone says, well, they just had no chance because that's how they were born. No, all children have foolishness bound up in them. It's because they're ignorant and they don't know. And the ignorant goes down a foolish path. It is not in a man who knows how to walk to direct his own steps. God has to teach us. And the parents have learned of God and they teach their children they train them up in that way of the Lord. They drive that foolishness from them. In Proverbs 23 and verse 13, it says, Do not withhold correction from a child, for if you beat him with a rod, he will not die. You shall beat with him with a rod and deliver his soul from hell. Again, it's out of love. And it's allowing them to escape much more pain and discomfort and anguish in the future. In Proverbs 29 and verse 15, it says, The rod and rebuke give wisdom but a child left to himself brings shame to his mother. 
What a shame it is to see so many children abandoned without mother and father. So many children that are left to themselves. But you know, the same tragedy can happen by parents who don't want to train up their children in the wisdom of the Lord, in the way the Lord says so. They'll be abandoned just as well. In Ephesians 6 and verse 1, the Apostle Paul then says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. And then he says this, quoting from the Old Testament, Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with you, and you may, be li- you may live long on the earth. You notice that's not instruction to the parents. He'll give that to the fathers in verse 4. That's instruction to the children. Children who have been raised up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, as verse 4 tells the, tra- the, the fathers to do, And they come to know the Lord little by little, and they grow in that. They know that what their parents are doing is what the Lord says, and they're going to do what their parents say, and they're trained into that obedience because they know the ramifications of it. Well, then they're going to be able to understand and chew on and appreciate Ephesians 6 and verse 1. Why do I obey my parents? In the Lord for its right. And when a child gets that eventually, that I'm obeying my parents because God says so, How much more healthy will that home be? How stable will that home be? How happy will that home be? They're going to understand that. And in turn, they're going to understand they need to obey the Lord themselves, period, in all areas. And that's what the parents are given as a task to perform by the Lord. Proverbs 1 and verse 8 then, it also gives some value to this and why they would obey their parents in addition to because the Lord said so. And it's going to bring so much happiness and healthiness to a home. It says in Proverbs 1 and verse 8, My son, hear the instruction of your father and do not forsake the law of your mother. And this is why, for they will be a graceful ornament on your head and chains about your neck. How much better would a home be if the children obeyed their parents because they knew mom and dad knew what's best? I value what they say. There's so many kids today, so many people who grow up that just think their parents are a joke. And how sad is that? That comes from worldly wisdom. But God's wisdom that is given to families, if it is submitted to, will raise up children who know that the Lord is right and knows that the parents who are following the Lord are right. And they'll treasure your advice. They'll treasure your wisdom. It doesn't just happen because you just happen to have a good kid. It happens from this intense effort of going in the way of the Lord. These are the homes that we're to have a goal to raise and to establish But it only happens, as the proverb says, by establishing it on understanding and building it through wisdom, and that being from God. If you're here this morning and have not obeyed the gospel, we want to offer the invitation to you to do so before it's too late. God has given us this morning as an opportunity to get right with Him. And so if you need to be baptized for the remission of your sins, Don't leave this place without taking advantage of this opportunity. If there's any other spiritual need that we can assist you with as well this morning, we ask you to come forward as well while we stand and sing the song that was selected.